What's up, you guys? How are we doing? Are we awake yet or what? Guys, I have a flyer outside. If you want to know what I do, more about it, connect with me. Go eat here and get one of these. Message me. We'll connect. Be praying. Amen? Let's pray, you guys. God, I pray that we would just get how good you are. Sunday morning, the craziness of the week, our own thoughts, the world's thoughts, all that has happened, that you are good and you are in control, and whatever people brought in here, release it in Jesus' name. Let it go that, Holy Spirit, you would minister and speak and move. We would hear from your word. Let my words fall to the ground. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray and say, amen. Amen. Well, guys, if you have your Bibles, go over to Hebrews 2. If you need one, raise up your hands. What are we doing today? We went through Revelation. You guys dig that? Amen. We got into something topical, and now we're getting back in the pulpit. We are on week two of Hebrews, and here's why this is important. If we don't understand the concept of Hebrews, we might have a crazy theology in understanding our faith. What do I mean? Guys, how are we saved? How are we born again? What is different about Christianity? What is it about being a believer that's changed us? Because there's many religions in the world. There's all kinds of faiths, all kinds of ideas. The new age, the new vibration thing, the Gnostic gospels, seeking all these other gods, What is different about Christianity? I say that because I have a friend in England. He's been getting fired up seeking the Lord and he'll message me. I went to this kind of church today and we prayed five prayers like this and five prayers like that. I make a list of all my sins and I go to the priest every Friday and I confess every one of them. No, that's ritual, not relationship. That's works, not worship. What is it about Christianity that is different? And I'm saying this because the book of Hebrews, we don't know who the author is. Is it Paul? Is it Priscilla? Pastor Austin said. Is it Apollos or Barnabas? Who knows? But the Holy Spirit gave it to us. Amen? The Hebrews is about rituals and ceremonies. They were given the Mosaic law. They were given the Ten Commandments. Here's I want you all to live religiously. And why is the author writing to them? Because what is Hebrews really about? What does the law really do? The law really points out that you and I are not good, amen? The law tells us, God, you're so good, and thousands of years ago, we know that we're not. So every year, we're going to sacrifice this animal, and Lord, you do your part, and we're going to be good, right? But was it really about the sacrifice? Was it really about the system? Was it really about religion? Because many of you will invite family and friends to church, And they picture it being religious and a ritual. They have no idea about a relationship yet. Amen? You're going to witness to them. But as I'm saying all of this, why are we thinking like this? Because Galatians 3.24 says this about the law. You know this verse, but it says, The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by what? Faith. The whole of this series, the Old Testament, the rituals, all the rest, it was a guardian. Driving down Gothard the other day and there was a load of school kids. And they were bouncing all over the road. And who was either side of them? True story. Guardians. Two women straggling to keep them going to the pond or the park or back to school. Those guardians were leading them somewhere. What is the Old Testament? It's a guardian that is pointing us towards who? 
Jesus. It's a guardian that's pointing us towards a man called John the Baptist who said what? Behold the... You can preach it. We're in church. Amen? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you realize how crazy this is? We're hanging out in the Jordan. Here's John the Baptist, some hairy, smelly guy, eating like he shops at mothers all day. Amen? And suddenly he says, behold the Lamb of God. And we're turning around and we're like, where's the Lamb? Let's be realistic. Where's the Lamb? There wasn't a Lamb. There was a man. It wouldn't have made sense. How is he the Lamb of God? Now let's get crazier. For Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, you name it in the Old Testament, they sacrificed all these animals. And when they got to heaven, did they seek out the lamb that was sacrificed? Were they running around carrying lambs, worshiping the lamb? No. None of them went to heaven to be with the Lord because they sacrificed the lamb. They went there only because of Jesus. Don't miss that. Amen. The author is writing to say ritual, religion, all of it. No, it's all pointing to Jesus. And last week, what did Pastor Austin do? He presented this idea that Hebrews 1 is about Jesus divine. It's about Jesus as God. Do you get who he is? But today, it's about Jesus as a man. You see, in their day, they were about to be persecuted. They were about to be persecuted. People will be bursting in here. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? And so they were rejecting now that Jesus was God because he was a man. We're the Hebrews. We can deal with him on a fiery mountain with the wind and the storms. He's God. But Jesus is a man. Many were rejecting this idea. And so the author switches from Jesus as divine to Jesus as a man in chapter 2. Are we ready? Got your Bible? Say Amen. I think I got more amens in the whole of Revelation series already. I'm the amen guy, amen? So we could read all the way through right now, but what I'm going to do is we're going to launch off. The author has just said, guys, Jesus is divine, but I'm going to tell you why he's a man and why you as mankind should celebrate this. So we're going to read right through. Hebrews 2 verse 1. After all of that, the author says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Notice how casual he is about his theology. Oh, you're believing this and believing that and all these winds of doctrine, go for it? No. We have a responsibility to cut that out at the root. The second they're being led astray, he isn't casual, he isn't nonchalant, he isn't just showing up to community. The author says, verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention. Brian, are you listening? Do you get it? Therefore, to what we have heard. What? That Jesus is the Son of God. That he's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. What does he say? So that we do not drift away. Pay careful attention so that we do not drift away. He doesn't just say you. He includes himself. Whoever this author is, she, whatever you want to say, includes themselves. They're saying it's possible then, as you live, to distance yourself from God at times. Not that he is distant, but you can drift away. We see this all the time. We're in church and we're fired up. It's Easter service, Christmas. This is amazing. We love it. Drift away. We're planning. We're in community groups. We're getting help with our issues. Drift away. We struggle with our sins, struggle with other people, struggle with ourselves. We drift away. And this term drift is a nautical term. 
It applies to a boat being docked on a bay, and if that thing is not anchored and grounded in God, God's word, what they have heard, it's going to drift away. If you aim your boat today towards Catalina, but you are 1% off, you are going to drift away. The author is saying, I've told you that Jesus is God. I'm going to tell you about a man. Do not drift away, and so he affirms his argument, verse 2. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? What message was it in the Old Testament that was spoken through angels and that was binding? It was the law. It was the Ten Commandments. We don't fully understand this, but we know from the scriptures that God spoke it, the angels facilitated it, the people received it, and they had the law. Brian, what do you mean? Acts 7.38, this is what they say. This is the one who was in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. Acts 7.53 you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's telling the Jews, guys, I know what we believe. I'm a Hebrew, we could say, if that's the author. We received the law from God. Angels helped. It came to Moses. He gave us to us. And we tried to live by it. But we couldn't. We couldn't keep it. And what he goes on to say is what? That it was binding and they were accountable to every violation. And he says this in verse 3. How then shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord, that's Jesus, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. You've lived for thousands of years with rituals, ceremonies, practices over and over and over. Sacrifice this, sacrifice that. And you're going back to it. You're abandoning Christ who walked among you face to face, person to person, the Lamb of God. And demonstrated who he is. Do you realize how radical this is? He says, how can you reject so great a salvation? He walked among you decades ago. And there's some still here who testified and saw him in person. He says that in verse 3. And this isn't the author guilting them or shaming them. Jesus himself said things as radical. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 10 and 14. He says, if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your words, that's the gospel. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You're willing to go back to the law, but he walked among us, yet you're rejecting him because he walked as a man. You can accept him as God with his rituals and practices, but you're missing who we are pointing to, and you say, Brian, that's crazy. There's people in our nation right now who've heard this message and still reject. There's people who've sat in these chairs, you could be here today, and you still reject this message. The author's saying, consider this or you will drift away. Okay, well, how did God prove this? He tells us, verse 4, God also testified to this by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. When Jesus showed up, how did God affirm this? Signs, miracles, and wonders. What do you mean? He turned the water into wine. He fed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Do I need to go on? He brought the supernatural into this world. 
He said, my kingdom is not of this world. You want to see? I'm bringing it in. And this is nothing new. God throughout the Old Testament did this. God with Moses and Aaron supernaturally invaded Pharaoh's kingdom. God with Elijah and Elijah supernaturally invaded King Ahab and that witch Jezebel's kingdom. Amen. And we see Jesus in the book of Acts. How does he move? In the power of the Holy Spirit demonstrating this. Again, he tells us this in John 10, 37. Jesus' own words. Preach it. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Jesus is saying I'm God in the flesh. The Bible tells us the fullness of the glory of God made manifest, Acts 2.22. It says Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, the ones who were rejecting him, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The point is chapter 1 is about his divinity. Chapter 2 is about him as a man. As the Jews, you would look down on this. Wait, God moved mountains, but now he succumbed himself to a life like us. He walked through the process of things like us. He was even nailed to a cross by man. Can this really be God? And he affirms just who man is. Verse 5, are we ready? He says, It is not angels that have subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, and the son of man that you care for him? The author's going back to Psalm 8, and he's saying, God, why are you so mindful of man? Guys, do you know what's in you? Paul says, wretched man that I am, born into sin, live for myself, struggle with the flesh every day, but Lord, who are we that you are mindful of us? And how significant this is, because even though we were born into sin and were aimed at death, what did God do? God so loved the world, he gave his son, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. God pursued man. He died for man. He rose again for man, but compared to angels, do we match up? The supernatural, giant beings. You see all the crazy images of them in the AI that scare us, amen? Eyeballs and flames and all kinds of stuff. What is going on? They're close to God every day. They don't die like we do. They have all this revelation, but yet... Mankind was made in his image, that's you and me. We have to own that, amen? If an angel showed up right now, all of us would pay attention. Generally, man falls down, the angel says, fear not. But the author's saying, guys, I get it. The angels gave the law. The angels showed up throughout the Old Testament. But who is man? You were made in his image. What does he say in verse 7? You made them, that's man, a little lower than the angels. And you crowned them, that's us, with glory and honor. And you put everything under their feet. Reminding them in the beginning when God created, everything was under man and woman. God gave Adam and Eve dominion, but they went and sinned. They listened to the serpents and the animals that were docile became ferocious. The coyotes want to kill our cats. No amen, amen. You go to Australia, every single thing wants to kill you. Probably even the pigeons. I've been there, amen? What is he saying? It's true. Go there. Even those koalas, drop bears are real. But the reality is he's saying, probably, he's saying that you made man lower in a sense now. 
Angels seem superior, and he's writing to them to tell them this. And what does he say in verse 8? In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present, today, now even, we do not see everything subject to them. Because since the fall, nature has been in rebellion. You've rebelled against me. I've rebelled against you. We rebel against our spouses, rebel against our kids. We rebel against everyone. Nature is falling. Romans says all creation cries out. If you say, why is there so many issues? Because we're living in a cursed world. Amen. The author is saying, do you see this? It's collapsing. World's cursed. I was in Starbucks the other day. Sorry to the coffee snobs. I'm like a milk and sugar guy. That's why I kind of keep this to stay warm in the winter. Amen. But I was in Starbucks and a 55, 60-year-old man comes in, you know, with glasses and a hat on. And I'm probably as far as I am from that door. And there's people in there. And he points at me. And he's like, Russell. I'm like, Russell. And he says, Russell. I know that Russell Crowe has an accent. I know that Russell Crowe is hairy. And I know he fluctuates in weight like me. But I am not Russell Crowe. Amen. And even though I shared with this man, my name was Brian, when he left, 10 minutes later, he said, goodbye, Russell. So now we have Andrew Shea, who's Hugh Jackman, an Australian, and he's friends with Russell Crowe, and we just need a, a crocodile Dundee, and I'm sure Pastor Brock somewhere has wrestled a few crocodiles, amen? But what I'm saying is, look at the world we live in, as funny as that is. Yeah, I mean... Looking like Russell Crowe, I'll take it, amen. If I was like Russell Crowe, I wouldn't be raising support. I could fund all your ministries, amen. <laughs> but what does he say in verse 9? He says that even though man has fallen, even though it has succumbed, even though the curse is here, if we look at Jesus, he says in verse 9, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. If you're like me, you would read this and you'd look over at your spouse and you'd say, you hear this? Jesus was made lower than the angels. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that Jesus got out of heaven and for 30 years walked among us. He stopped ruling and reigning in that sense. And from the time of his birth to the cross, he says, I do what I see the Father doing. We see him there in the temple area at 12 discussing with those who understood and he was focused on God. We see him in the garden saying, let this cup pass. We see him withdrawing to pray day and night, praying to God. We see him on the cross saying, why hast thou forsaken me? And we even see him dying the way we die. Obviously not on a cross, but he submitted himself to this world. He made himself lower than the angels. He was born into a town without a relevant name, in a manger around donkeys and chickens and fowl. He lowered himself and Lord. Why did you do all this? Verse 9. He did all of this. He walked among us. He's telling the Hebrews. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Listen to this. This is for you. Because he suffered death. Why, Lord? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Through one man, Adam, death came. And through the second man, Jesus, eternal life came. Through one man came the curse. And through the second man became what? Redemption. Have you ever thought about the story of creation? you ever thought about the fall begins with a tree? It starts in a garden with a tree and they eat of the tree and the second they eat of it, what do we hear? The curse? All the days of your life, thorns. And what do we see when Eve gives birth? Every child after that is cursed. 
There's a tree, there's thorns, there's a curse. What's the story of Jesus? A woman gave birth to him too. Amen? Without Adam's DNA. He wore a crown of what? Thorns, taking on our work to give us rest. And where did he die? On a tree, a cross. He's saying, do you see who man is? Adam fell, but Jesus rose again. Adam represents the curse, but Jesus represents redemption. Brian, you're stretching it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam, we all die. So in Christ, we will all be made alive. You want to talk religion? Who else did that? Do my Buddhist friends, do they believe that? Do our Hindu friends, do our Muslim friends, do our pagan friends, only Jesus did this, Lord. Why would you do that? Hey, Brian, why did Jesus do that? Verse 10. Because in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's us. It was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the pioneer, that's Jesus, of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. There's one of those words that triggers you, you then. What do you mean, make Jesus perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? Of course he was. If he wasn't perfect, he couldn't die for us. But until his blood was shed, until the sacrifice was given, until he said, it is finished, it wasn't perfected. He had to live for 30 years. He had to shed his blood. He had to hang on that cross for you and me, taking all of the sins upon himself. He says in verse 11, it gets really selfish for us guys. Listen to this. If you're feeling like you're distant from God, feeling like you're all over the place, God isn't distant, you are. God goes nowhere. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who were made holy, that's believers. Listen to this verse. Are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus, though he was God, was God was completely dependent, completely looked on the Lord, completely followed after God. What do I mean? That the way he lived was relating to us, showing us he was man. It says in verse 12, and this is quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 22, right here in Hebrews. This is God way back then, thousands of years ago now, speaking of man. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. God has hidden in the Old Testament in Psalms 22 that he would look at you and me as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. That means wherever you are, God has recognized you. What does he say in verse 14? It gets deeper. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. He's saying he defeated the works of Satan, the works of the enemy. Do you hear me? But what does that mean? Does that mean Satan can rule and reign my life? No. Does it mean he can decide when I die? No. In the book of Job, he needed God's permission. To sift Peter as wheat, he needs God's permission. But you know what Satan can do? Listen to me. You struggle with sin. You're going through a season. Satan will use God's truth against you. God says, don't eat of this tree. And he said, did God really say that? Don't eat of this tree. You won't die. You won't surely die. If you study the occult in any way, this is their belief. 
They can hand you an apple full of poison and they put it before you. Don't have to tell you what it is, but when you take of it, you're the guilty one. If we blame the devil for everything, why were Adam and Eve also cursed in the garden? I'm guilty of what I respond to. I'm guilty of what I do. I'm guilty of where someone leads me. I'm guilty of what I'm opening up to. Well, Brian, isn't it all Satan? Yes, he came to steal, kill, destroy. Jesus came to give us life, to defeat death. But what does the Bible say in James 1.14? Each person, that's me, that's you, is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Jesus, though, defeated this power. Jesus now gives me the Holy Spirit. Whatever your issue is with sin, it's going to show up every day. But you know what? The Holy Spirit's there if you want to depend upon him. You can close that laptop, not send that text, not clench the fist. I'm human like you. I get it. Amen? But what he's saying is Jesus defeated this. There was no hope before this. The Lord proved we were guilty. And now in Christ, he's defeated death. And who doesn't fear death? As a kid, hearing of my grandmother pass away, laughing in shock, like, really? And then crying in bed, like, wait, she's gone? Shocked, freaked out, this is death. For you, it might have been when you watched The NeverEnding Story, amen? You know where I'm going with this. There's going to be t- tissues in the back. And Atreyu's horse was in that swamp, Artex, you remember the scene? And we're all scarred for life, or maybe it was when Yoda died in Star Wars. I wept then, and my dad, George, laughed at me on the couch. Thank you, Dad. My point is, death hurts. Death can be painful, but as Christians, we're not meant to fear. What does Paul tell us in Corinthians? He says, death, where is your sting? 1556. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. How is that a verse for this sermon today? It's the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Austin last last week, he shared two quotes by Tim Keller. You know where Tim Keller is today? He is more alive than ever. Pastor Austin shared those quotes, amen, what a man of God dies this week, is more alive than ever. Why? Death, where is your sting? Even Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Death, I might die, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Because you are with me. How does that psalm end in verse 6? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Even though death's coming, even though it mightn't be too pretty, talk to some of you outside about family members who are struggling, yet it looks crazy in this world, but in Christ, glory. In Christ, glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hebrews 2.16, the author goes on. This is his argument. He's saying, God, Jesus is holy, chapter 1. And you see that he's man because you're walking away from him because he's just a man. But God made man in his image. God gave him dominion. But you're looking at the world as cursed. Who is man? We're God's creation. Verse 16 of Hebrews 2. Surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them fully human in every way. That Jesus walked among us, faced the same struggles, had times of hunger, times of this, times of that, walked in the flesh. But Jesus is the only perfect human that has ever lived. No one has ever kept the law. James 2.10 says, if you break it in one place, you're guilty. One lie, I'm a liar. One lustful thought, I'm an adulterer. One time of hatred, there's murder. 
We're all guilty, but what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life. And how did I start this sermon? By asking, how are we saved? How are we forgiven? How are we born again? It's not the rituals, not the ceremonies, not my friend making a list of all his sins to show some man and say, look, and as soon as he leaves that day, has a bad thought and got to go back to the man. Here's the, rea- the reality of what we're saying. Is that though God gave the law, the law was perfect, but why was it bad? Because man is flawed. Because the priests were flawed. The priests would offer sacrifices for you. And you know who else they would offer sacrifices for? Themselves. They had to refrain from being unclean. Refrain from their struggles over and over and over. We've never had a perfect priesthood. Amen? But then here's Jesus, the perfect man. Jesus showed up as the perfect man. And is Jesus possibly a priest? What were the requirements of being a priest? I know we don't care of bloodlines in America, if you like conspiracies like me. I like to know about bloodlines, amen? If you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew, if you're in Israel, you want to know about bloodlines. You want to know who are you descended from? And Jesus was this perfect man, but was he a priest? Because in Jesus' day, there was a man that was a priest. There was many that were priests, but there's one I want to focus on. There's one whose bloodline lines up, and there's one whose service lines up. You see, in Jesus' day, John the Baptist, this is what we read in Luke 1.5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is John's dad, and his mom is Elizabeth. Zechariah, we are told, belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. To be a priest, to be of a tribe of Levi, to be descended from Aaron, they were the recommendations to honor the role of priest in this day. Along with your genealogy and lineage, you had to meritocratically live to a merit, live to a standard to say, I've set myself apart. What am I saying? In John and Jesus' day, there was two high priests, Caiaphas and Anna, and they were goofing around in Jerusalem. They were put in place by the Roman emperor. What was it that John the Baptist was doing? John had fled the hypocrisy in the city. He was living out in the wilderness. He was making a decree to God. He's taking a Nazarite vow. How his hair was, how his food was, how he drank. What is he doing? He's setting himself apart. John is descended from the Levites, from Aaron, from Abijah. John the Baptist is a priest and he set himself apart. Brian is stretching it. What did Jesus say in Luke 7, 28? He said, I tell you, among those born of a woman, there's no one greater than John. John fit the lineage. John lived up to the standard. But the priest also had to fulfill roles. The first role of the priest was to wash the what? The sacrifice. John the Baptist is on the Jordan one day, and here comes Jesus. And what does the priest John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did this priest set apart the Lamb of God? Second thing you have to do is prepare the next priest for his role. What did John do? We're told that ceremonially by baptizing Jesus, he was setting him apart for his responsibilities. John baptizes him in the water. A dove descends, the Holy Spirit, and and God says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You guys following me? I know it's early. John's a Levite, tribe of Levi. John's from Aaron. He set apart the sacrifice. He's baptized Jesus. Jesus, is this the new high priest? The problem is, Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi. 
Jesus is the lion of the tribe of what? How are we going to get a priest out of this? Are you telling me that what you could have said in five minutes at the start is the whole of the Bible is the story of God's priesthood through Levi and Aaron's ceremony sacrifices? Someone messaged my friend in England and said, stop doing this. And it's all about to point to Jesus. Yes. Jesus couldn't have been the Levitical priest. He was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Brian, what did John say? Here is one coming after me whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. I must decrease he must increase. That was a term about passing on the Hebrew lineage. Are you saying there's no Aaronic priests? Oh, they're doing it today, but there hasn't been a temple since 70 AD. No one is performing these ceremonies since the Lamb. Brian, are you stretching this? Are you ready? Say amen, because I'm ready. Amen? I've been in this for four days and shed tears over how radical this is. Everything I just said should make sense and forever change your guilt and your shame and all our work and our salvation. I get what the verse says, but that means walk with God. It doesn't mean pay the price. Hebrews 7.11. Look at how radical God is. This is so shocking. Whatever happened in my life reading this verse is so shocking. Listen. Hebrews 7.11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of what? Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, here it is, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. It is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15. What we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not based on regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Who has ever lived that has an indestructible life? Only Jesus, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become a guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death, prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus, because he lives forever, has a permanent priesthood. Listen to this. This is you and me. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins, you and me, everything we've ever done. Once and for all, when he offered himself, for the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews, this not blow your mind. Everything that was ever written about Aaron, about this, Ten Commandments, 613, can't pluck out your beard, can't cook an egg, can't turn off a light switch, all of these things that are in the Talmud and the rest of the scriptures that they hold to, not for me, 
All of it is void once Jesus came. The world will be judged by it. But Melchizedek appeared to Abraham in Genesis 14. He's not just a priest, he's a king. You were talking today about Jesus, the prophet, priest, king, sacrifice. Wherever you are in your life, do you realize you simply believe and that is it? For someone like me who skated professionally for years, it's about perfection. For someone, for you, maybe it's selling houses or doing this or doing that. It's all about works and perfection, getting to a level. No, Hebrews, it's not about any of this. It's about Jesus, the high priest who walked among us, and the author is saying, do not reject it, and where do you finish? Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 17. He did this in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement. That's propitiation, or that's satisfaction for the sins of the people, us branches. He himself suffered when he was tempted. He is also able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted from the outside. Sin came towards him. It never went out from him. The serpent tempted him in Matthew 4. He's seen things. He experienced things. The flesh is real. But he never had sin within. Sin never came from him. It wasn't birthed out of his heart. What this means is Jesus... No, let's just get real. Wherever you are in life, whatever is going in, whatever you've said or done, whatever weight you are carrying, it does not matter once you repent to Jesus. I'm not saying live this lowly standard, we're called to rise up, amen, think on things above. But it's not works, it's relationship. What do you do in a service like this when you hear this? An author said this, as humans it pains us to resist temptation. It pains us to avoid it, to wrestle with it, to put it off. Whereas for Jesus, it pains him only to be tempted. I started this service today asking, what is our faith about? What is it? It's not about your goodness. Heard someone say one time, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You've been good enough since you came to faith. I haven't. I not struggle with sin. Even the woman caught in the act of adultery, was she never judgmental, never jealous, never got angry? I'm not saying live that way, but you realize who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So how do you possibly finish a message like this? Do we bring up three practical points for how to live? No. This message is simple. Let's bow our heads for a moment, you guys. Let's get real. Where are you today? Service isn't full yet. I know many of you, but where are you? Maybe you're in here today and you are simply drifting and you say, I just feel distant from God. Maybe you're here today and you won't let yourself feel like a brother or sister to Christ because how could I possibly do that? Well, he died for you and his blood is more powerful than anything you can even think about doing. Maybe you're here and you have this religious mindset of yourself. You're trying to keep this and to keep that and to do all these things to stay afloat and you are not walking in God's grace. God's watched you every step of the way where there's been success and struggle, but are you really walking in the peace of God? Maybe you just strolled in here today and you've never even heard this message and you said, where is this guy going? But you realize that Jesus is the Lord. John 3.18 says we're all condemned without Jesus. Many sat before him, looked into his eyes, heard his voice, even probably shook hands or bowed before him, but they didn't receive him. How many have walked into these buildings and heard these sermons on a Sunday but still reject them? If you're here today and you might feel distant, you might say, Lord, I feel like I'm drifting. You might say, Lord, I have radical, crazy sin. Don't tell me. Go to the Lord. 
You might say, Lord, I need to get right with you today. Right here in California, Huntington Beach, you want to leave this place saying, Lord, I repent. I put my faith in you. Or help me on my way. I am drifting. I need to be anchored in you. If that's you and you just want to say, Lord, I need more of that today. On the count of three, would you just raise up your hand? One, two, three. Amen. Amen. Could we do something right now? Could those who raise their hands just stand for a moment? We want to honor God. We want to honor all these scriptures. We want to honor who he is. You raise your hand and you just want to feel closer to God. You understood that you're born in sin, you need forgiveness, or you just feel distant from him. You raise your hand, would you just stand where you are? Guys, could we just open our eyes for a moment? And could we just spend a moment, if there's anyone around us, could we just go over to them and as we do, lay on hands and pray for them? For everyone else, let's just stand where we are as well. Can someone gather around these who need prayer for encouragement? For everyone else, let's stand too for a time of worship. Guys, here's what we're doing. We're going to simply praise God. We're going to lift him up. We're going to acknowledge him. But I want us to pray. Let's see, amen. What we're doing, if anyone here is confessing, is we're acknowledging God in heaven. We're acknowledging Jesus as the perfect sacrifice. And he shed his blood for us. And as we cry out to him and say, Lord, I need you. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. We're trusting the Lord in that. But for everyone else, just for a moment, I'm going to pray over us, and we'll get into worship. Don't be a bystander, church. And let's just think, imagine of all the people that don't know the Lord that we could invite, that could have heard this today, that could respond. Who do we know that would come to church and hear because the number one reason people come to church is they're invited. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And in the last hour or so, wherever your sons and daughters are, whatever weight mama is carrying or dad, whatever struggle someone is facing, you've heard it, you've seen it, and you can minister to it. And Lord, I just pray today that we release all of these burdens, all of this weight, all of this guilt and shame. And we acknowledge and receive, and Lord, it is hard even after salvation to think that you just want to spend time with us. You said in Psalm 8, Psalm 22, that you will worship in our midst. You will sing in our midst. You receive worship, Lord, but you are in our midst. I just pray that peace of God over your people. The way people repent, God, save, move, speak to the heart. Where people carry that burden. Where people are drifting, Lord, if it's the things of the world, they would rise up and trust in you, Lord. Put the flesh to death all the more. God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment of worship. Guys, if you need prayer for anything specific, there will be people around the room. I will be down here in the front. When I read a text like this, I just feel like, what has God done? A whole priesthood rituals and sacrifices pointing to him so we can walk with him let's worship him church amen thank you